we've been looking at relationships and the impact that we have in each other's life. At the core of that is forgiveness. I'd like to share a story that Lewis Smead shares out of his book, Forgive and Forget. Maybe one of the best philosophical defenses for why we should forgive I've ever read. He tells this story. My favorite story of the freedom to forgive is the one Corey Tenboom tells about herself. Corey was liberated from a Nazi concentration camp a few days after the Allies conquered Germany. It took longer to be liberated from her simmering hate. But she set out on the forgiving journey through her remembered pain and kept traveling until she arrived at the place where she forgave even the Nazis who had dehumanized her life in the camp. In forgiving, she believed that she had discovered the only power that could heal the history of hurt and hate for the people of Europe. So she preached the possibilities of forgiveness. She preached it in Holland, in France, and then in Germany, too. In Munich one Sunday, she preached forgiving, preached it to all those German people who were so eager to be forgiven. Outside, after the service was over, a major drama of the human spirit unfolded. A man walked over to her. He reached out his hand, expecting her to take it. Ja, Fräulein Tinboom. I am so glad that Jesus forgives us of all of our sins, just as you say. Corey knew him. <clears throat> she remembered how she was forced to take showers with other woman prisoners while this beast looked on, a leering, mocking Superman guarding helpless naked woman. Corey remembered. He put his hand close to her. Her own hand froze at her side. She could not forget. She was stunned and terrified by her own weakness. What could she do? She who had been so sure that she had overcome the deep hurt and the desperate hate and had arrived at forgiving, what could she do now that she was confronted by a man she could not forgive? She prayed. Jesus, I forgive this man. Forgive me. At once, in some wonderful way that she was not prepared for, she felt forgiven. Forgiven for not forgiving. At that moment, in the power of the fundamental feeling, her hand went up, took the hand of her enemy, and released him. In her heart, she freed him from his terrible past, and she freed herself from hers. Freedom. What is forgiveness? One of the hardest issues that I uh, come across in forgiving and being forgiven and forgiving somebody else is to draw just a lead shield, if I can, between two issues here. My responsibility and the responsibility of somebody else. The, the difference between my forgiving somebody and going and asking for forgiveness. You have in your syllabus, and we're really not going to discover that or discuss that, of the need for me to go and ask somebody to forgive myself. That's a critical part of our life. It obviously is. In fact, we are told in Matthew that don't uh, even come and attempt to worship God if you know your brother has something against you. Well, you're to go and to uh, make reconciliation and ask forgiveness for that. Well, that's a, that's a responsibility you and I all have. I think the Holy Spirit prompts that because he talks about the setting of worship here. And when you know now or you recall to your mind that somebody has something against you, then it's my obligation to go to that person because the issue is between me and that person. But forgiving somebody else has nothing to do with that other person. It's between me and God only. And if you work that out in your heart, you don't even go to the other person and tell them that. In fact, I strongly suggest you don't. 
Because by and large, the offense that has been made against you may not even be known by the other person. Or that other person could be dead. In fact, oftentimes, we're chained to that past in that kind of a way. In fact, many cases, and people being held in bondage and not having the freedom of forgiveness, it's been to people who they can't go to. Matthew says this, right in response to the Lord's prayer, where we're asking, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. We're asking, oftentimes, not very much. If we haven't forgiven others, and we ask God to forgive us in the way we've forgiven others. But listen to what follows in Matthew 6. If you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Well, imagine what a statement that is. Why is that so strongly stated? Well, first of all, I'd like to suggest to you that forgiveness itself is required by God. We're not talking about an optional thing here. This is something God says, if you don't do it, then you need to know I'm in opposition to you. Now, I can almost sense a cry for justice. Wait a minute, I'm the one that's been hurt. I'm the one that's been hurt. Why should I forgive? Well, not only that, it is essential for, for freedom. Matthew 18 is one of the longest discourses in the Bible concerning this. When uh, they asked Jesus, how many times should we forgive then? Up to seven times? He said, no, up to 70 times seven. In other words, you keep on forgiving. Keep on. Luke states it in his record that he said, if he comes to you and asks forgiveness and repents, you forgive him. What if he comes again that day? Keep doing it. Just keep doing it. And they respond, oh, Lord, increase our faith. He gave him a little story, and basically the essence of it was it's not a question of faith. It's a question of obedience here. You do it because I told you to. So we need to know, first of all, the extent of our own debt. That's part of our problem in this particular area. You see, the whole parable that is given there in Matthew chapter 18 as it begins is to talk about this unbelievable, unpayable debt that you and I owe God. It is so great we would never be able to repay it. Never. Now that's where we have to start. When we realize that God has forgiven me because later on He's going to say, you forgive as Christ has forgiven you. And what I want to suggest to you, first of all, and we'll look at this a little later, is that the concept of repayment for debt owed is impossible. It's impossible. The debt that we owe God was so great. And then he went on to tell about the story of this man who had received God's mercy now, went out, and even though he couldn't pay the trillion dollar debt to God, he goes out and tries to get the fifty dollar debt repaid to him, and when they don't repay him, he wants to throw him into debtor's prison. He does that two or three times, and then finally God comes to him and says, you know, I'm opposed to you. I'm going to turn you over to the tormentors. And boy, we're going to find out a little later who those tormentors are, but, but God himself, you see, will allow the devil to have a field day in our life. And the Lord was moved with anger, Matthew 18:34, and handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do for you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. You see, before it's just forgive. Now he goes one step further. You do it from your heart. How do you do that? There's a wonderful story in Luke chapter 7 
where a Pharisee threw a party. His name was Simon. And he invited all the nobles of the community and the tax gatherers and the Pharisees and said, all those kind of people were there. One young woman slipped in, however, and began to anoint the feet of Jesus with her tears and began to wash him with her hair and uh, kissing his feet. An incredible act of adoration and love. And the self-righteous old Simon looked over and said, wow, if he was a prophet, he would know what sort of woman she is. And Jesus says, I have something to say to you, Simon. Suppose somebody is forgiven a debt of $500 and then another one $200. Which one do you think would be most thankful? Well, I suppose the one who is forgiven the larger debt. He said, you've answered me correctly. Simon, do you see this woman? When I came to your house, you never washed my feet. She washed my feet with her tears. You never gave me no kiss. She hasn't stopped kissing me since she came. You never anointed my head with oil or anything. She's anointed me with herself. Simon, those who have been forgiven much, love much. There's the point, people. There is a little bit of a tendency of those who don't have very rank flesh, who haven't had a real bad background, who kind of entertain the thought, well, I haven't been forgiven that much. Oh, you owed God a trillion dollar debt, one that was absolutely unpayable. The only way you could be free was for God to pay that debt, and he did in Christ. And our problem is, is that we don't know oftentimes how much we've been forgiven. We kind of compare ourselves and I owe God 50 bucks, you owe him a million, you can never repay it. And, and almost a self-righteous kind of an attitude here. And I want to suggest to you, really the first step in understanding how we forgive from our own heart is to know the degree that we've been forgiven. Because he has been forgiven much, loves much. It isn't that we all didn't need very much forgiveness, it's that we are not aware how much we were forgiven. But those who have been forgiven much, love much. Let me tell you something fundamentally nature about sin here. Sin, as you know, technically means to miss the mark. It doesn't make any difference if you miss it a little bit or a, or a whole lot. But nobody has lived a perfect life, so everybody's missed the mark here. Uh, it was a term used in archery, as you probably are aware of, and, and if you didn't hit the bullseye all the time, you missed the mark. That was called sin. It's like playing tennis today. If you miss the tennis court, it's a fault. It really doesn't make any difference, does it? If it's that far from the line, if it goes over the backstop, it's all fault. It's all sin. Well, we have a tendency today to see ourselves in comparison with each other in, as opposed to in a comparison to God. So, sin is understood in how I am doing right now in relationship to God. Whenever you see heaven opened up, and people got a chance to actually see the essence of God, or at least the manifestation of his presence, as Isaiah did, his first reaction was to fall on his face. Oh, am I a, a sinful man? For I have a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a nation of unclean lips. He became aware of his own sin first. If, if people today are living in the presence of God, they're aware of his holiness. Whenever you see heaven open up, when the knowledge of God is, is powerful, like that. Boy, people fall down. The first thing they're aware of is their own sin. But if you're living a long way from God, we have a tendency 
to look over at other people, have certain expectations of them, and when they don't match up to them, we call that sin. Huh? Don't we do that? I'll tell you what. The person who lives close to God isn't aware of somebody else's. They're aware of their own. They're aware of their own. And it doesn't make any difference who we are. One of the uh, typically required readings in most seminaries, a lot of literature programs, is that great work by St. Augustine, Confessions. Well, that wasn't written in the first part of his life. That was written in the latter part of his life. When he became painfully aware of the greatness and the holiness of God as he grew, he became more increasingly thankful for the grace of God in his life and for the incredible forgiveness. He who was so apostate is now probably next to the Apostle Paul and Moses, maybe the greatest Christian who's ever lived. He's an amazing man, said in the, the beginning of those dark ages, and all the reformers' theology basically came out of Augustine. Incredible man of God. Well, know the extent of our own indebtedness to realize that repayment is impossible. It's impossible. Suppose uh, in my church, some woman come up to me, or a man doesn't make any difference, and said, I, i got to talk with you. I'm under conviction here. I've been gossiping about you. And I want you to forgive me. Boy. Can I demand repayment for that? How would you repay it? Well, I could sue her and go to court and sue for damages. That's what the world does. But even if you did that, for instance, would that pay for it? No. There's no way you can. Repayment is just simply impossible. We're out here trying to atone for our own sins. That's impossible. You can't pay for your sins before God. And if you're going to forgive as He's forgiven you, repayment isn't even an issue here. If you're trying to work for your salvation instead of accepting God's salvation and working it out, boy, what a meaningless struggle that's going to be. I'll tell you what, it is so expensive that silver and gold couldn't buy it. It really took the precious blood of the land, didn't it? Well, it's impossible. Therefore, mercy is required. We were saved not by deeds done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. And the whole concept of forgiveness is based in mercy. Be merciful then as your Father has been merciful to you. You don't give people in this world what they deserve. Because if you and I got what we deserve, we deserve hell. But God gave us what we needed. That's what we try to give to other people. Not what they deserve, but what they need. So, what the whole point of this is, is that no advantage be taken of us by Satan. Now, there's a tremendously powerful passage. We just went through it real quickly when we looked at strongholds of our mind here. But I'm suggesting something to you, that when Paul says that we are to forgive because we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes, and he doesn't want Satan to take any advantage over us. Now we find out here in Matthew 18 that God himself will turn us over to those tormentors. And that word torment, if you look it up in the original language, is used throughout the New Testament as spiritual torment. That's the same word that demons use when they look at Jesus. Why are you tormenting us? Why are you tormenting us? Let me give you a practical illustration of that. Have you ever been a, a really struggle with somebody who's hurt you and you just said, oh, I'm just going to forget it. Guess what little word in mind and picture occupies your mind? That's the tormentors. 
I can't even get to sleep. I want to think about everything else and I'm just constantly battling my mind to try to think of something else and all I can think about is that person. I lay awake at night thinking of that person. Therefore, it must be extended to others. However, let me say, the crisis is only between us and God. When it says, put away all bitterness along with all anger and wrath and malice and slander. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as Christ has forgiven me. Somebody has to be asking, now, wait a minute, why should I forgive? Why should I do that? You don't know how bad that person hurt me. It's easy for you to say, Anderson, you never were raped. You didn't have a father who molested you. You weren't wrongfully abused as a child or even as an adult. That's true. Most of that's true. I had a relatively decent childhood. Not perfect, but a good one. But I want to tell everybody who, who would listen to me, I'm, I'm not dismissing this for a second. I know how bad you've been hurt. But God has divined a way here to stop the pain. Don't you see that past person and event still hurting you? How do you stop the pain? Do you drown it out with alcohol? No. The tormentor will come back probably even more so because you're buying into Satan's answer to these things. God has a way, people, to stop the pain. Somebody has likened forgiveness is to remove the shackles and the chains and only to find out afterwards you were the prisoner. That's why it's not really between you and the other person, it's between you and God. You forgive from your heart before God. What is forgiveness? It's not forgetting. It's not forgetting. Forgetting may be a long-term byproduct of it. A lot of people have misunderstood a, a term in the original language here of God will remember my sin no more. The implication would be it seems as though he will forget it. No, God doesn't forget anything. How can an omniscient God forget anything? God doesn't forget. The word <clears throat> remember is interestingly enough, because in the original language there, where we get our uh, word amnesia from, uh, is used in an opposite sense when it says, do this in remembrance of me. Well, that's just not a, a mental process going back into time. In essence, it says, you take what happened for you on that cross way back then and in the resurrection and you make it applicable in your life today. That's why we celebrate communion. You are bringing that back into your entire experience again, into your conscious perception that what was what happened for you in the cross back then is now present and available in your life. Now, if you put a little alpha in the original language in front of that word, it negates the meaning. And that says, now, I will remember your sin no more. It's interesting how both occur in the covenant of God, which we call the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31 and 31 and following. Both are there. But what's interesting about that is, is that forgiveness from God's perspective is, is that I will not take the past and use it against you. I will remove it far from me as the east is to the west. But an omniscient God doesn't forget. I'm not so sure God even wants us to forget. 
I think that there's a sense of learning here that God says, no, that, that is, that's a point of time in your life, but as you remember it now, it no longer has that hold over you. And the emotional part and the pain is diminished down to a point where it's no longer controlling your life. But you may never forget. But even if you do, it's the byproduct of forgiveness, not a means to, ever. Nor is it tolerating sin. You tolerate sin, you make a mockery of forgiveness after a while. There's a tendency by some people to, to say, because it's an issue primarily between me and God, that, all this, that I, I forgave you for that, but now I'll just tolerate sin from this point on. No, that's not true. Uh-uh. See? I'm making this lead shield difference between what's my responsibility, what I have to do for my own sense of freedom between me and God, but there's a whole other set of responsibility that has to take place over here. When I was sharing the conference in the church in this area, a gal came to me and said, I know I need to forgive my mother. She was in tears. And if I did right now, what would happen when I go home this weekend? Because I'm going to see her this weekend. I said, now you need some help as to how to continue your relationship with her. But you have to do that as a free person. Right now, whenever you see her, there's so much anger there and resentment and bitterness that there's no way you can have any meaningful relationship. Well, my mother's not a Christian. I said, okay. But I, I, I tell you, somebody needs to help me when we're done here. If you, if you find the real freedom of forgiveness, and I'm confident you will, but you can't go home and live in the same kind of relationship nor allow her to dominate or control your life anymore. Here's a mother with two kids. I said, you may need to say something like this, Mom. We haven't had a good relationship. And uh, there's times when uh, I'm really hurt by the things that you share. And it's not good for you to do that. It's not healthy for me to listen to it. And I, I can't be a part of that anymore. I hope you understand that. I love you, Mother, and I want to honor you as a mother. But I, I'm just really not going to put up with that anymore. You may have to do something like that. So you're not, we're not seeing here, God doesn't tolerate sin, people. He died for that. But He doesn't tolerate sin. There will be no sin in His presence someday. That's why you're going to get rid of this earth suit. If you're going to live in the presence of God, it's going to be who you are as His child only. And the body of sin will be done away with. We're not talking here about tolerating sin. I'll share an illustration of my life to show you what that means, but, but, uh, my only crisis of forgiveness, but, nor is it seeking resentment, revenge, or repayment. Well, I'm not going to forgive him. I'm going to hang on to the soul satisfaction of hating the rest. Well, <laughs> who loses there? See, you do. Well, I'll seek revenge. What does God say? Revenge is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Repayment is impossible. Impossible. The person who seeks revenge, all they do is put themselves in the same level as the other person. What it is, is to resolve to live with the consequences of another's sin. That's why all forgiveness is substitutional. If we're going to forgive as Christ has forgiven me, then in essence, it becomes efficacious. It becomes substitutional. Now let me illustrate that. Here's this gal who come and gossiped about me. She really is under the conviction of God and she's asked me to forgive her. Now, if I say I forgive you, 
I have to live with the consequences of that person's sin. Don't I? I mean, the gossip went out. Now, let shield again. She may have an obligation before God to go back and correct that as much as she can. That's her responsibility, however. And there may be a necessary thing of church discipline that would hold her accountable to that. But my crisis is, right now, of my will is, will I forgive that person? And if I do, then I am agreeing to live with the consequences of that person's sin. I will have to live with the fact that that gossip went out, my character was somebody feigned and whatever else. You say, that isn't fair. That's life. There isn't an awful lot of fairness in this world today. But let me put it to you honestly here for a moment. You will have to anyhow. <laughs> Won't you? The only choice you really have here is whether you're going to do it in the freedom of forgiveness or continue to remain under the bondage of bitterness. That's all. Because you will have to anyhow. So I'm going to agree when I forgive somebody. I'm not going to use that past against them. Not in terms of our relationship. That does not mean, again, that this person may have some legal responsibilities with the state, some moral obligations before God, or some disciplinary matters to work out with the church. But you see, that's between them and their God and their church and their society. Now, I may even be part of the process uh, that ensures that that discipline is there, but I'm not going to do that out of bitterness I'm going to do that out of the freedom of forgiveness with love which has that best interest at heart. The other person's best interest at heart. Now, when somebody tells me, you know, in a marriage setting or something like that, that says, uh, oh man, two years ago you did this. Do you know what that person just said? I haven't forgiven you. I'm still taking the past and using it against you. Somehow or another, you see, I'm going to use that in a very subtle way to manipulate you to get you to do something. Is that God's way? Never. You're trying to be that person's conscience. Is that right? Won't work, people. The moment I try to become somebody else's conscience, I direct their battle with God onto myself. I just about wipe out the role of the Holy Spirit in that person's life, and I play that role. And that is not a role I can play. I neither have the power nor the wisdom to pull that one off. Ever. Ever. And God now never allows me to do it. You say, well, where's the justice in all of these things? Where's the justice? There's something about forgiveness that screams for justice here. It isn't right. It isn't fair. I'll tell you where it's at. It's the cross of Christ. You take it to the cross. You see, Jesus died once for most of the sins of the world. What does it say, people? All. We have a tendency to think, oh, great, for all of my sins. No, all of the, the person that offended me as well. There's the justice. It doesn't cover just what I've done in the past, or just me, or just the moral issue between me and God. It's all the sins of the world. All of them. And if it wasn't without that, there'd be no justice. God is a just God. God's a just God. And there's something inside me. If I, just, if I just forgave that person, you know, why should I let that person off the hook? 
All you're doing, people, is letting them off your hook. Are they off God? No. That's why God says, Revenge is mine, I'll repay, saith the Lord. Believe you me, you and everybody you struggled with will stand before God someday and give an account for every deed done in the flesh, whether good or bad. That's true. That's what we refer to in 2 Corinthians 5, there's the beam of seat judgment. Really, it's for a profit and reward. But someday, every person is going to stand before God and give an account. Everybody is. What we're seeing here when we forgive is, is I'm not going to play the role of God in this matter. I'm going, to re- I'm going to take them off of my hook. But they're never off God's, nor are we in that sense. But I want you to know something. You've already begun to see there's something tremendously liberating about that. When I stop playing God in that other person's life here, and I start stop assuming God's responsibility to deal with that individual, I really am free to get on with my life. But you see, if I don't do that, what happens is is that I, personally then, have never taken one step to stop that pain, and I'm still playing some kind of a role in that human's life that only belongs to God. What are the steps? Steps to forgiveness. First of all, make a list of all that have offended you, including all that, you, all that have a negative feelings towards you. Everybody. I've had people tell me in counseling, you say, Oh, man. How many pieces of paper you got? I said, as much as you need. How much time do you have? As long as it takes. You may be like this dear woman I shared with you in the last session. It very well could be that. It may be four pages long. Could be. But if you ever walk through this kind of procedure... I'll help people, by and large. I'll help people sit down and, and, and work this thing through. You know the two most overlooked people on that list? God and ourselves. I've had people sit there and just tremble. Let yourself off your own hook. Why are you on this performance kick? Forgive yourself. I have to look back maybe 10, 15 years ago. I don't even remember the event, but I'll remember the day. I can remember sitting there before God saying, Lord, I can't think of anybody right now I need to forgive. That's never been a really major struggle with me. I sat there for 10 minutes waiting for everybody else, and boy, I'll tell you, a clear impression came, Neil. Forgive yourself. Get it off your own case here. Let yourself go. Let God be God in your own life. Stop putting those goals and expectations of yourself and when you don't quite measure up to them, get off your own case. That's the accuser's role and you need to realize that. Oh, I'm telling you, that was a day of freedom for me. It really was. I think on that day I stopped being a driven person and started being a called one. I stopped listening to other people what they expected me to be and started to just simply be and rest in the presence of God and be what He wanted me to be. We're talking freedom here. What we'll get at on, on, uh, on the last of our series here is a prayer that I'll have people pray, asking God to show and to reveal. Now what happens here sometimes is that people come back that have been repressed out of their memory entirely. And this can be a very difficult time for some people. 
The other issue is you face the hurt and the hate. Here is the great evangelical slide over. Oh, I forgave him. What did you forgive him for? Oh, a lot of things. You know what they're doing right now? They're trying to, to stay away from that hurt and that hate. They're, they're trying to stay away from the pain. He said, wait a minute, what right do you have to even bring that up again? Because I want them to be free. There's, there's, there's some kind of a, a blinding in our church today that says, I'm a Christian, now I don't hate. Well, if you don't, then why do you need to forgive? Well, maybe I don't then. Oh, no, wait a minute, don't slide over that. Now, let me tell you what happens is, is that when I help people work through this thing, I, I invariably will ask them to tell me what it is that you are going to live with here, what it is that you are not going to repeat again, what it is that you're going to forgive this person for. I, I want you to be specific, not for my sake, but for your sake. Why do they struggle with that? Because they don't want to have that remembered pain. This is tear time. And seldom, if it's real, doesn't, that doesn't ha that happen. You see, if we're going to forgive from our heart, you have to be willing to acknowledge the hurt here and the hate. You have to be willing to do that. I had one particular gal who was on our campus as a student. For seven years, she'd had one problem after another in this area. Just uh, hearing voices and seeing things and just terrible conflict. And She heard me speak one night. I was talking about who we were in Christ in the local church. When afterwards she sat in that pew, she was just sitting there, like this here. And uh, everybody left. She was just sitting there, shaking. And I said, are you okay? She said, no. Well, I found out she'd been following me around. I didn't know her from Adam. I only teach on the graduate level, so undergraduate students I don't have any knowledge of. And, but she'd heard me speak. And that particular night, talking about who we were in Christ, she, it's like she couldn't hear it. So I asked her the next day. I said, uh, since I found out she was on campus, I said, you come see me. And boy, I tell you, it was revealed then what her problem was. But it was a while. I was kind of learning myself at that time how to resolve these things, but it finally got down to a point one day when we sat down and worked through these issues of forgiveness. And you talk about a struggle as she, as she made that list out and what it was she was forgiving those people for. And there was one time she just took that pen and just went, like a share, and just scribbled all over the paper. Boy, it was a crisis of the will. Crisis. And she walked off free. A year later, she left for the mission field. She spent two years in Africa. I had uh, a girl on campus. She'd been in and out of the hospital for eating disorders. She'd love to share her testimony here with you today. She was actually in an eating disorder uh, inpatient program in a local uh, hospital. And she was trying to tell them that she's hearing things in her head. And... Uh, the good doctor there made her write an essay of why uh, blaming this on the devil 
was an attempt to free her of her responsibility for choices in her own life, making fun of the fact that she was in that spiritual conflict. One of my students was sitting through my class, was trying to disciple this particular girl, and uh, su- suspected something like that was going on, and she'd been in and out of hospitals and anorexic and bulimic and... and uh, so they gave her that little warfare prayer. She just threw it down. And they said, I think you need to go in and see Dr. Anderson. So she came by my office and there was no question that that was a major part of her problem. And with a little struggle, she found that freedom. She went back to her normal counselor and the counselor said, well, you're just on a high right now. She said, well, then I don't need you anymore. <laughs> and she didn't. And she finished her last year of school now again, let me say this, it's balanced people, that's not the whole piece of the pie, there are a lot of other developmental things that are a part of it, but if you're not free, you can't process those things. Well, when we sat down, when she was making a list of people she needed to forgive, we were sitting there listening to her pray, Lord, I forgive my mother and my father. By the way, let me tell you something, you have people make this list, 90% of the time, the first two people mentioned are mother and father. Three out of the first four will be close family members. Across the board. Well, she got down on her list. And I, it had to have been discernment because I, nobody else in the room detected it, but I, I, uh, I knew something was wrong and I looked over and I said, wait a minute, that wasn't Laura. And a voice just changed and said, she'll never forgive him or her. So I asked who her was. Well, her was a, a woman in her home church. She went back that past summer to a Christian service type of an assignment to try to teach with Sunday school kids and, and that, and she sat down with this woman. The woman went to the committee and says, well, this woman has, has had drug problems in the past, and whatever. you want that kind of woman working with your children? And they said, no. And she found that out. And I'm saying, boy, I tell you people, you know, don't, hold people's paths against them. Allow them to find their place in the body of Christ. Well, within a year's time, that girl had changed so much, she spent the next year in Korea, about 40 miles south of the demilitarized zone, teaching missionary kids and stuff over there. And she's back on campus this summer getting her master's in this area, and she's going back. I just filled out a letter of recommendation for her. Now, for years, she's just been struggling like you can't imagine. But she knows what spiritual complex is about. This is a contest. Uh, This is the hardest resistance you will find. Decide that you will bear the burden of their sin and not hold it against them in the future. You decide to do that. Well, what are you really deciding to do here, people, is to say, I want to get on with my life. I know I've been hurt bad, but it's still hurting. And how do you stop the pain? You simply say, from this day on, I'm forgiving that person. I'm not going to bring it up against them. I'm not going to use that information against them. I'm just going to live with, with what's happened in my life and get on with it now. By the grace of God. That's what we're really doing. And then you take it to the cross. Lord, this is yours. And you realize that what we're talking about here is a crisis of the will. Let me ask you a simple question. When God says, you forgive as Christ has forgiven you, is this an option for us? It's a choice. 
God requires of it, but we choose it. It's a crisis of the will. If God tells me to do something, can I do it? You see, there's so many out here saying, well, you're just not ready now for forgiveness. When are you going to be ready? After you've suffered a whole pile more pain? You don't wait until you start to feel good about the person to forgive. You forgive the person in order that you may start to feel good about them. If you're waiting for your feeler instead of truth and faith and obedient response and isn't feeling, if you're waiting for your feeler to work out your, your choices in life, you'll never get there. You'll be locked into that past and that person probably for the rest of your life. This is God's way to set us free. And I'm here to tell you in the whole last half of this conference here that this is the primary issue of setting Christians free. This is the greatest opportunity that Satan has to gain access to Christians right here. I know of no exceptions on the last things that we do in this conference that this is consistently the most important issue or at least always part of the issues where others may not be a part of it at all. But that's always there. Always there. Always there. And that's part of the conflict that they're in. Let me share my story. I was uh, pretty young in the ministry at the time. had a very, very difficult church relationship. I look back now and realize uh, my first pastorate, how many mistakes you make, and, and uh, my desire to reach that community for Christ, <laughs> and uh, how some begin to block my little goals, etc. Well, one particular relationship I had on my own board was very difficult. Uh, he was going through his own set of problems, I'm sure. But uh, I realized that I was having a power struggle and things weren't right there. I was a little naive in the assumption that I can relate to anybody if I try hard enough. So I visited him and I asked him if he would meet with me for breakfast once a week. <clears throat> and uh, he agreed to do that. I, I had one goal. I can look back and honestly tell you I had one goal just to see if I could establish some relationship. Because there was things going on on the board that I knew were there and didn't feel comfortable with. and um, I felt a little smug about the fact the previous pastor had problems with him too, so it, it had to be him. See? <clears throat> but uh, I was going to do the noble thing. Boy, where the other guy never got through, I was. I was going to sit down once a week. There really are not words in the English vocabulary to describe how I hated that once a week. Um, I, I love to go out and just sit down and have lunch with people, but this was not fun. It was a miserable session. It was a sparring contest every time. And it's just like, why can't I break through? Why can't I have some kind of relationship here? Well, now I look back and realize just an absolute truth. If nobody wants to have a relationship with you, you can't have one with them. No matter what you do, no matter how you try. So if he didn't want to have one, I couldn't have one. Well, we struggled on for six months. <clears throat> Every week. In the middle of it, I had been for years desirous of going to Israel. In the middle of it, I asked uh, the board if I could put together a tour from our church. 
Well, he was immediately against it because that would be like giving me a bonus because he knew if I got enough people to go, I'd go free. So I said, well, I'll pay my own way and use it in my vacation time. And the board agreed to do that. I, I knew some felt uncomfortable with that and had no problem with the other, but, but I didn't want to create a problem. So I went to Israel, <clears throat> paid my own way there. Uh, it was a neat trip. I'm almost glad I went that way looking back because I didn't have the responsibility arrangements, but I was the only pastor on the thing, and so I got to do all my pastoral things. You know, I got to baptize a few people in the River Jordan, and boy, it was great. It was a wonderful thing. But I knew what part of that historical trip would have the most meaning to me. It was that Garden of Gethsemane. Because I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the pain of a relationship here that was not right, not good. And uh, to be honest with you, looking back, I did not feel good about this guy. I mean, I, there was hurt there, and there was hate. There really was. He was blocking some of my goals. Well, I went through the tour part of the, walking through the Church of All Nations there where they have enshrined that rock where the Lord spent that night in prayer. And even in that moment of, of His humanity and weakness, Lord, if it be that will, take that cup from me. I went back to that place and spent, I don't know how many hours there in the afternoon. And I think for the first time I realized what that scene is all about what it meant to take the sin of somebody else onto yourself. And he had to do it for all the sins of the world, and all he's asking me to do is to just simply live with the consequences of the other person's sin for a while. I got out of there. There was a sense of freedom. God, I can do that. I really can. I can take that offense. You know, it's only one person or two. By the way, let me share an interesting observation if you've never seen it. Most people are very familiar with Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. But I believe we need to see that in context. The first verse says, if you catch a brother in sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness and look into yourself, lest you too not be tempted. I want to suggest to you, that what you're doing in verse 2 is bearing the burden of the sin of the person in verse 1. That's the law of Christ. That is the law of Christ. That's what Christ did. That's what He came to do. That's Christ. That's the cross. Well, anyway, I came back and by golly, pressure lightened up on me, but He kind of took His attack on my youth pastor. That did it. You know, you can throw a stone at me, but throw it at my kids, man. <laughs> I get a little bit anxious here. and So I decided that what I had to do was make a stand. And so in a December meeting, right before Christmas time, I said, Lord, you have to do something about this, or we're prepared to resign. I wouldn't do that again either, at least not right before Christmas. It was a lousy Christmas. About two weeks later, I got a letter from the board who had met without us and said, we've arranged a meeting for the two of you to come together and shake hands and get on with life. I said, wait a minute. You're not dealing with the issue. Well, I went to the meeting and asked his forgiveness kind of superficially for not loving him, but I wasn't going to change or back down. And I thought I was doing what God called me to do. And I, I realized there was a tension here and it wasn't seemingly going to get resolved, so I decided I was going to resign. 
Well, I got sick. Not a major sickness, a little flu, not until well enough to preach. So the denominational exec came in and preached, came into our church and, and uh, stayed. I had felt good enough for him to come over and have lunch with us afterwards. And <clears throat> he was thrilled about our church because we had bought new property and the building program was underway and the church had doubled in my time that I was there. And he said, boy, things are going great. I said, I know I'm resigning next Sunday. And I meant it. He looked at me. and He even knew what I was talking about, but that's not the point. Wednesday morning, I, was, I felt good enough to go to work, but before I did, I sat down and wrote out my resignation. <clears throat> I was going to go to church and tie it up and read it next Sunday. By Wednesday afternoon, my temperature was 103 and a half. And by evening, I totally, not partially, totally lost my voice. Gone. Nada. <laughs> I, couldn't, I had to write notes to my wife and children. Now, it, is, it doesn't take a genius to realize that God is not pleased with my decision. I mean, I've never had a temperature like that in my life. I'm laying here flat on my back. I, I was struck down. I couldn't get to that church next Sunday if I wanted to. My wife still chides me. She said, it wasn't the temperature that kept you away. The fact that you couldn't say anything when you got there. So the, the denominational exec came back the next Sunday. Next week, I was laying at home and trying to recover from this thing. And you know when you're flat on your back, there's nowhere to look but up. It can be a great time. And I was reading through the Gospel of Mark, came to Mark chapter 9. Well, here's a man who's blind. And the Lord reached down and made some spill and mud and stuck it in his eye. He said, what do you see? He said, I see men like trees. And the Lord touched him a second time. He said, now I see men clearly. Oh, did I get the message. You see, I was seeing this man as a tree, an obstacle in my path. He was blocking my goal. And my whole thing was to remove it. You know that golf illustration of life? Occasionally in some golf courses, they'll put a tree right out in the middle of the fairway. Oh, what an obnoxious place. But I'll tell you what, if you learn to shoot accurately, it can help your game. <laughs> You wouldn't have much of a game of golf if all you played was open pastures where you could spray it all over the place. Boy, the tight courses are the ones oftentimes that make you a better golfer. But you see, I realized what an independent cuss I was at that time. And I thought, boy, if I want to accomplish my goal in this church, I've got to get rid of this guy. That's not very godly. It's not a very noble time in my life looking back. And I, I just prayed to God, God, I need a second touch. I need you to touch me again. I don't want to see people like trees as obstacles in my path. They're not. They're people created in the image of God. And God gave me a second touch. I went with an old husky voice to that church that next Sunday. And I preached out of that passage and how we see people. You see, it starts out that and they come to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to see him and entreated him to touch him. See, somebody has to take that blind man to Jesus. They're blind, they don't see. Judicially blinded. And entreat him. But when touched in that area, you're looking almost at a period of growth here where you get beyond seeing people as, as obstacles like that. I said, part of it is because of our independency. You see, we come into this world, we're absolutely dependent upon mom and dad to live. 
If they didn't change us and feed us, we'd die. And our goal is to be independent. Well, you may have to work through that because God's goal is that you be dependent upon Him and interdependent with each other. That's God's goal for us. And you get rid of that rebellious independence. I want to do my thing, set my agenda, build my church. Well, God struck me down. And I, I told that people in my own life, there was that sense of independence there, and I didn't want to see people like that. And I asked God to give me a second touch, and, and He did. And if you understand what I'm talking about this morning, and you want to join with me, and you want God to give you a second touch, and you want to stop seeing people like that, come and join me. I was not prepared for what happened. People started to get up all over the church, go across and ask forgiveness of each other. The organists and the pianists were crying and they, they had to stop playing. And the church couldn't hold the overflow. We, they opened up two doors and went out into the lawn in the street. It wasn't a matter of time and all but 15 people were out of their pews. We had revival. But it took God to change this pastor's heart to do it. Care to guess who one of the 15 were? Never changed, to my knowledge. But he changed me. And I want you to know something else. If I had my way, I wouldn't even be here today. I would have checked out of ministry about 15 years ago. I am what I am by the grace of God. And I can talk about this person in my mind. I can see him. I can go back to that place and it doesn't have a hold over me anymore. Well, what happened in the board? We, we built our church. The votes was 8 to 1, 8 to 1, 8 to 1. So, no man down here is going to keep God from doing what God wants to do. Whether he's part of your family or board or whatever else. And nobody is keeping you from being what God wants you to be. I thought that man was. He wasn't. I can pray for him now. He's a child of God. He's got his set of problems. I have mine. But I'm free. Praise God, I'm free. And I learned something about love. Just a little bit more. What God was trying to do is to make me a pastor. I was trying to build a building. It's easy, isn't it? To make those mistakes like that. He says, is it hard to forgive? Only initially. I'll tell you what, it's a lot harder to live without it. In fact, life is the pits without it. Freedom of forgiveness. It's our choice. It's a choice. You say, what right do you have to tell that person who's been raped to forgive? That's not even a right, that's a privilege. To tell them that that rape is not going to determine who you are. And you can be freed from that experience and grow through the process and get on with your life. And you can do it in such a way that Satan can't take advantage of you anymore. And take that event and make it the event in your life. When the event in your life was Christ when he came into it. That's the event. And that's the one that's going to determine who you are. And he's the only one who has the right to do that. So I'm going to encourage you because we're going to deal with this on the end of our conference here.
Make a list. Maybe one person, maybe you. Could be God. Why should I forgive God? He doesn't need forgiveness. You see, that's not the problem. <laughs> There's a lot of times people have needed to forgive other people the other person didn't do anything wrong. I have actually had my name on the list of the person I was counseling. They kind of, well, Neil, you, I, you almost wanted to ask, what did I do to you? Well, I wasn't there when she called me in my house. And she's holding that against me. There was nothing I did wrong. It isn't the other person that's the issue. It's your own perception. Why would you need to forgive God? God does nothing wrong. Because I pray and I expected God to do something. He didn't do it. And I'm so mad now at God. That person needs to forgive God. If you don't think that's true, I wish you had been with me and a number of people who are in demonic crisis like that and realize that's probably been one of the greatest things that they were able to confess. You see, old Satan has brought up all kinds of knowledge against who God really is here, and they've taken up an offense against God, and they thought God has, has gone out of their picture, and, and they're so doggone mad at God. God, where are you? Why didn't you keep me from this? It's a very, very common thing. You watch what happens when that person sits down and says, God, I forgive you for not being there, not doing what I thought you were going to do. And I know now, it's just me. And it was a wrong perception. I had a wrong expectation of you, but I forgive you for that. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that you will help us to understand these things. Because it's so rampant all around us. People we live in. Pastors and parents people in the pews are bitter and they're trying to go on with you and they can't. And Father, your desire is to see us free, to relieve us of roles and responsibilities that are only yours and allow us to set that other captive free that we may get on with life. Pray for all those who, who may watch or hear or be here today that they'll take this seriously before you that they may find the freedom you purchased for them and to begin to face the future, not the past. And to be free to do it. Thank you for that power that releases us from that. Thank you that it is a choice. It is within my capability of doing it. That I don't have to wait and live in misery one moment more. So I pray for this truth to be borne out in our hearts and our lives. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name.